You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Good to see everybody today. As uh, Max mentioned, this is the week of the year, weekend of the year when a lot of our women go on a retreat, and it's been my unscientific observation that when the women go on their retreat, more of their husbands bring their kids to church <laughs> than when we go on our retreat in the fall and, and uh, the, the families all stay home then. So just, just an impartial observation <laughs> from me. I'm John Bruce, one of the pastors here, and if this is your first time with us, thanks for coming. We would like to give you a, uh, a gift of appreciation, and we have a, a coffee tumbler, a... Uh, water bottle or a sippy cup, and you can pick up one of those out at the information desk right out here. If you have questions about our church, uh, there is a card in the seat back in front of you. Just fill that out. If you have prayer requests, put that on it and uh, drop it over here in the uh, offering slot. Um, Also, if you'd like more information about small groups, we're real big on our community groups. We really think that being a Christian is more than coming on Sunday, that we need to have more intimate relationships with each other, and we have a lot of community groups. We want to keep nagging you to get involved in one, and you can find out about those on our website or just by filling out a card saying, I'd like more information, and, and uh, we will get in touch with you and let you know what's, what's available. Before we go to the Scriptures this morning, let's pray and ask God to, to guide us. Thank you for your promise, Father, that... Uh, Those who do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but who delight in the law of the Lord, and in your law meditate day and night, will be like trees planted beside streams of water, which bear their fruit in its season. Their leaf does not wither, and all they do, they prosper. And Father, we want to be people who take your word seriously, but we need your spirit to, to teach us and guide us and, and give us strength to obey what you command us. We pray you'll be our teacher this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. About 400 A.D., a 16-year-old named Patrick was living in what is today northeastern England. Patrick was a part of a tribe called the Britons, which was one of the Celtic or Celtic groups that covered the British Isles. He was uh, from a family that had uh, been Romanized, had, had uh, overthrew the Roman occupation. They spoke Latin. They had become Christians. In fact, Patrick's uh, grandfather was a priest. Patrick himself was a, a nominal Christian. All that changed when he was kidnapped by Irish pirates and sold as a slave in Ireland and spent the next six years just herding cows. And because he herded cows all by himself, he had nothing else to do but pray. And he, he became quite a, a prayer. He would pray throughout the day. And the more he prayed, the, the more real the, the awesomeness and the love of God became to him. And he gave his life to Christ. And during that ta- time, he got to know the Irish Celts and their language and their culture and grew to love them. One night he had a dream, and in the dream, 
A voice told him to go to the coast. His boat was waiting, and so he left his herd and, and walked to the coast, and sure enough, there was a, a boat there, and he negotiated his way on board and returned to Britain, where he trained for the priesthood. He became a, just a regular village priest for a number of years until he had another dream, and that same voice told him to go back to Ireland and take the gospel to the Irish who had never heard it before. And so Patrick and a small group of men and women made their way back to Ireland, and, and that became one of the most significant events in, in church history. Once Christianity became the official religion of Rome, the Roman church stopped any efforts to reach outside of the Roman Empire. Uh, they, they thought if people can't speak Latin, if they can't read, they're not intelligent enough to become Christians. And so the Roman church's evangelistic program was to build churches and just wait for people to come. And all of the barbarian tribes on the outskirts were left without any witness for Christ. And so Patrick and his little team's foray into Ireland was the first time in history since the first century that the gospel began to grow cross-culturally. At that time, Ireland was divided into 150 separate kingdoms, each with its own king. And Patrick and his team's strategy was real simple. Patrick would get permission from the king of a kingdom to, to set up a little settlement close by, the main settlement of the kingdom, and his people would begin to befriend and get to know uh, the Celts in that area. And uh, they, would, they would look for ways to, to serve them. They, they would uh, uh, pray for the sick. They would uh, counsel the troubled. They would mediate disputes. They would feed the hungry. And they would do a lot of open-air preaching, and they would use a, a lot of the the myths and the symbols of the Irish to, to present the gospel. Um, soon, people were coming, spending as much time in their settlement as they were spending in their, own, in their own village because they just felt welcome there. They felt part of things, and as they became more and more a part of this little Christian community, more and more of them became Christians. And when there were enough local Christians, Patrick would build a small meeting house. He would leave one of his uh, one of his people there as a spiritual leader, and then they would move to the next, next village. They did this for the next 30 years, and they baptized thousands of people, and probably 30 or 40 out of the 150 tribes uh, in Ireland became Christian. Well, after Patrick died, the Celtic Christians continued to do this. They reached all of Ireland. Then they went back over to the British Britain and, and reached Scotland and Britain, which were largely pagan. And then in the centuries to follow, they went over to, to Western Europe and Eastern Europe and reached all the barbarian tribes this, using the same strategy. And so while the, the Roman church in the West and the Orthodox church in the East had basically stopped growing by 400 AD, the Celtic Christians basically Christianized all of, of Europe using this strategy. And, and what I want to talk to you about today is, is to show you why. Why what they did worked. 
We are, uh, today's our last day of a, a short series we've been doing called Reset, uh, Solid Ground for Uncertain Times, because we are in uncertain times. And when Christians are in uncertain times, we always go back to what we know. And so we're going back to what we know, what we are certain of, the foundations of Creekside, and we've looked at four of them, the gospel, which is the foundation of everything we do, the good news that God has done for us through Jesus, what we could never do for ourselves, the scriptures, we're committed to, the, to, to knowing and living out the Bible, loving each other as the family of God, loving our city and doing good, and today we come to the fifth foundation, and we're going to finish up with that, and that's reproduction. You may remember that in the Gospel of John, Jesus gives three characteristics of his true disciples. One, he says, true disciples read their Bibles. If you continue in my word, you're truly my disciple, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We talked about that several weeks ago. Second, he said, true disciples love each other. This is my commandment, that you love one another even as I've loved you. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. How? By your love for one another. And we talked about that. In John 15, 8, Jesus gives us the final proof that we're truly his disciple. And let's read it. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It is as we bear fruit that we prove we're really Christ's followers and we bring glory to God. Now, when Jesus says this, he's preparing his disciples for his departure, his return to heaven. And he explains to them in John 15 that even though he's leaving, he's not stopping doing the work of God in the world. Up to this point, he's done God's work through one perfect man. From now on, he'll be doing God's work through many imperfect people. And, and he uses the picture of a vine, a, a, a grapevine. He says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word I spoke to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And Jesus says that, that as he works through us, through the branches, and produces fruit, since the Father is the vine dresser, the Father is the one who profits from the fruit, the pro- Father is the one who gets glory from the fruit, the fruit he make, produces in us not only proves that we're his disciples, but brings glory to God. Now, what's it mean to glorify God? Glorifying God simply means to call attention to God to remind people there is a God in heaven who's at work on earth. And that's what Jesus did. Remember, whenever Jesus would do a miracle, people would be amazed, and they would say, we've never seen anything like this, and they would begin to give glory to God, because only God could do stuff like this. And Jesus says, I'm not done glorifying my Father. From now on, I'm going to be glorifying him through you. The Father is the vine dresser, and he gets glory through the fruit of, of the vine. When my dad retired, he became an avid gardener, and I think every square inch of, of dirt on our lot was covered by 
fruits, vegetables, flowers. He's always out there working. And just total strangers would come and stop in front of our house and tell him how much they were impressed by his gardening prowess and get tips from him. And that's kind of the idea here, that as, as people see the fruit that Jesus produces in us, God gets the glory because only God could produce those, that kind of stuff. That's the idea. So the question is, what's fruit? What's fruit? Fruit is the way a plant reproduces itself, right? Orange trees have oranges. And in those oranges are seeds for more orange trees. So when Jesus talks about fruit, he's talking about disciples reproducing more disciples. He said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Jesus sent his Son to seek and save the lost and to make disciples. And now he gives us the same job, to make disciples. And, and so that's what we're committed to as a church. We're committed to reproducing, making more disciples of Jesus because that's what he called us to do. Now, I've been in ministry for uh, a little over 50 years now. And in those, those years, I've noticed that the church in America has one disciple-making strategy by and large. Get people into church. It's, it's the same strategy the Roman church had in Patrick's day we can just get people into church, they'll become disciples. What I've noticed is we're good at making attendees. We're less good at making disciples. And, and that's why I want to go back and look at how Paul made disciples, which was copied by Patrick and his group, and, and look at how do we bear fruit? How do we reproduce? How do we make more disciples? I want to look at three essentials from Paul's first lesson, letter to the Thessalonians for making disciples, how we cooperate with Jesus living in us to help other people come to know him. First is teamwork. Second is truth. Third is hospitality. Hospitality should have begun with a T, I know, but... Uh, it wouldn't have made any sense. So, <laughs> teamwork, truth, and hospitality. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 1. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved of God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Thessalonica is a seaport and was one of the first cities in Greece that Paul took the gospel to. He was only there for three weeks before he got chased out by the Jews in town. But he left one of the strongest churches in the New Testament. And this is his first letter to this church. It may have been the very first letter Paul ever wrote. And Paul begins by reminding them in the first three chapters of what happened when he and his team came to Thessalonica. 
And he says, I'm so grateful that, that when we came, the gospel came with such power that your lives were changed. You became disciples of Jesus too. Here's what I want you to notice. How was the power of the gospel visible to the Thessalonians? Notice what he says. It came with power, also in power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. The power of the gospel was seen in the lives of Paul and the men with him. Just as, as Patrick did not return to Ireland alone, but took a team of Christians with him. So everywhere Paul went, he took a team of Christians with him because he knew that the power of Christ is seen most clearly when people see Christians together. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, not what kind of man I proved to be among you for your sake. In John 17, when Jesus prays for us, he prays that we will be one. Why? So that the world will believe that the Father sent me, he says. In John 13, 35, he says, By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another which means they have to see us together in order to know that Christ lives in us. So it is in our relationships, it's in how we get along with each other and operate with each other is one of the greatest evidences that Christ lives in us. That's the idea, you see. And so that's why when Patrick goes back to, to, to Ireland, he takes a fellowship with him. He takes men and women with him. And as the Celts, saw the way they deferred to one another, the way they loved one another, the way uh, they cared about each other and served one another, and that they didn't have the same conflicts and, and the same kind of problems in their group that we have in our tribe. They felt more and more welcomed to come and join this group because there was something different about them. There was something they couldn't put their, their, their hands on. When I was in college, I had a number of Christians share the gospel with me, and we had some un wonderful conversations, but I, to be honest, I completely forgot those conversations within an hour after having them. They just made no real impression on me. But when I started attending a college fellowship, I noticed that there was a different quality of life in these people's lives that I couldn't put my finger on what it was, but they all seemed to share it. It's like one Christian, solitary Christian is just an unusual person. But when you see a whole bunch of them together, it, it just, it underlines what makes them different. And I wanted what these people had, and that's what brought me to Christ, was being with not a Christian, but being with Christians. Does that make sense? And so the first principle for making disciples, it's a team sport. It's not a solo event. I learned to do evangelism by myself. That's the way I was taught to do evangelism. It was a solo thing. I shared my faith with somebody else. I shared with my faith, my faith with tons of people, with lots and lots of people, but very, very few 
ever came to faith, as far as I know. Because, you know, it was kind of flashbulb evangelism. I was there and I was gone. They didn't get to know me, and they didn't see a group of Christians where they could see the difference that Christ made. It was just a quick thing. And I think at Creekside, we've seen quite a few people come to Christ over the years, and it's always been simply the same way. People will get involved in our fellowship kind of on the periphery. And it's not like they believe this stuff. I mean, for most of them, it's, it's, it's implausible. But they get involved. They come occasionally on Sunday. They'll get into a small group. They begin to have Christian friends. And the more they feel like they belong here, the more they feel a part of things, the more what seemed implausible begins to seem plausible. And then it seems probable. And finally, it seems true, and they come to faith as a result of seeing the work of Christ through his church, through his body. I think one of the greatest barriers to people coming to faith in Christ is social. Because a lot of people think, if I became a Christian, even though I think it might be true, if I became a Christian, I'll lose all my friends. Because they'll think I'm a Neanderthal and an intellectual, or worst, and I don't want to be alone. So a lot of people don't come to Christ because they think they'll be totally alone. But when they're adopted into a group of Christians, into a team of Christians, they begin to find out you won't be alone. In fact, these people will love you more than the people you think you can't live without. And that's why I think for a lot of people, they don't become believers until they become regularly involved with a group of believers. So that's the first thing I see here in the principle for making disciples, reproducing disciples. It's a team sport. It's something we do together. And one practical application for you is don't keep your non-believing friends and your Christian friends apart. Introduce them to each other because God does surprising things as those who don't yet believe are in the presence of a group of people who do. That's lesson number one. Now, again, this is not, this is not what we do to make disciples. This is, this is what Jesus makes disciples. But this is how we cooperate with Jesus as the branches of the vine. And one is by operating as a team. The second essential for making disciples is truth. Nobody becomes a Christian simply by having Christian friends. It's essential, but it's not sufficient. Do I, I guess I didn't put it up there, so you'll have to take this on faith. <laughs> Romans 10.13 says, Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Right? How do we get faith? Faith comes from hearing the truth, hearing the gospel. I cannot become a Christian. I cannot have my heart changed. I cannot be born again. I cannot become a child of God apart from being born again of the Word. And so not only is teamwork essential for making disciples, the proclamation of truth is essential for making disciples. Look what Paul says. 
Continuing on in 1 Thessalonians, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, where up the road where Paul had gotten beaten for preaching the gospel and thrown into jail. As you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For you, let's see, do we have a verse after that? Thank you. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. Everywhere Paul went, he always checked out the local jail because he knew that because of the message he preached, it was likely he might end up there. And yet because he was committed to pleasing God and not man, he continued to boldly preach the message of Jesus. The gospel divides because the gospel cuts against every culture it enters. Caesar is Lord, said Roman culture. And if you don't believe that, you're going to be in trouble. You are Lord, says our culture. And nobody has the right to tell you what to do. The gospel comes in and offends both cultures. Jesus is Lord. And we need to follow him. We need to obey him. And, and for that reason, wherever truth goes, it either brings people to Christ, people are born again by the word, their hearts are changed by the word, or it causes conflict. And we don't like conflict. There is a quote that is well-loved by both Catholics and Protestants, and you've probably read it. It says, at all times, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And it is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Problem is, there's no historical record that he ever said that. And he never lived that way because Francis preached the gospel as often as he did good works. Because he knows there is no salvation apart from belief in the gospel. Being in the Bay Area for 52 years now, I am used to the anti-Christian bias here. And for a long time, I thought, if I just would be a nice guy, people are going to come and ask me, why are you such a nice guy? And I will be able to share my faith with them. You know how many times that's happened in 52 years? Never. It's never happened. Because I'm not a nice guy. <laughs> but because there's no faith in that. There's no faith in that. We are called to speak the truth. We're just mailmen. We just deliver the mail. How people respond to the mail, that's between them and God. But our job is to proclaim, and there is no disciple-making without the proclamation of truth. I used to think that the Bible was for Christians. 
And the gospel message was for non-believers. I've, I've learned that's not true. I've been walking with my neighbor this past year, and, and uh, it's, it's been remarkable. Um, I don't know how we got talking about the Bible, but I think it was just because we were talking about neighborhood, neighborhood things going on, and, and he asked me what I thought, and I said, well, as a Christian, I, and I'd quote some Bible verse. He'd say, where's that found? And I'd tell him, and he'd go back and read it. And he'd come back to me and say, well, what about this? What about this? What about... And pretty soon, he would come to me and ask me, okay, what should I read now? And I'd say, well, let's read through the Gospel of James. And then the next time we'd go for a walk, we'd talk about the Gospel of James. And we've, just, we've been talking about the Bible together for the last year. And it, it just happened. It's just ripe fruit. His life has changed. He knows God. And he's seeing God free him from old habits. And it's the most amazing thing. And it's just through the power of the truth. Just him being exposed to the truth. You cannot reproduce disciples apart from the truth of Scripture. And the best thing you can do to help your unbelieving friends come to faith is see if they'll read the Bible with you. Just read a chapter a week and just talk about it. Let the Bible do the work. Because it's far better at doing it than we are. You don't have to be able to answer all their questions or anything like that. You say, oh, I don't know. Just getting them to read it and explaining whatever you can, God will use that to bring them to yourself. So, teamwork is essential in re reproduction. Truth is essential for reproduction. Finally, hospitality is essential for reproduction. And by hospitality, I don't mean 21st century hospitality, which is entertainment, where we entertain people in a spotlessly immaculate house along with our well-behaved children with dishes from Magnolia Cookbook and our witty, entertaining conversation. That's, that's why no hospitality goes on, because none of us can do that. I'm talking about New Testament hospitality. The, the word for hospitality in the New Testament is love of strangers. Love of strangers. And that's what Christians were known for. They were known for loving people who were different than they were. They were known for loving outsiders. Loving people, different religions, different politics, different races, different nationalities, different social classes. They would open their lives and their homes to those people. Look what Paul writes here as he continues what he did in Thessalonica. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you would call brethren our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers." 
just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul says, remember when we were there with you? We loved you like you were our own kids. We were tender toward you and affectionate toward you. You part of our family. And that's the same thing Patrick and his team did. When they would camp beside one of these little settlements there, they, they looked for every way they could to love their neighbor as themselves. To, to, they welcomed people into their meals and into their fellowships and into their worship. They, they prayed for the sick and the possessed. They took care of the widows and the orphans. People felt more a part of their family than they did of their own, and that's why so many people became Christians. Hospitality, I think, is the Christian's superpower because we're the only ones who will do it. You think, how did the early church grow without any church buildings? Because our strategy is get people to come to church. That's the way you make disciples, get them into church. Even though church attendance is at an all-time low nationally, over the last 80 years. Here in the Bay Area, the vast majority of our neighbors will never attend church. They'll never come. It doesn't even register to them. So if we think we're going to reach the Bay Area through our church, we, we can't. We won't. A welcoming home is much more powerful than a welcoming church. Simply because a lot more people will come to your home than will come to your church. That's what, what Paul discovered. That's what Patrick discovered. That's what the early church discovered. The, the early church, it was 300 years before there were any church buildings. Everything was out of the home. And the Christian home in the neighborhood was the home you knew there was always food. There was always a listening ear. Where you knew that you would not be excluded because you didn't fit in with the rest of the neighborhood. Where, where you knew that somebody would be there to pray for you. That if you were an orphan, someone would take care of you. If you were a widow, someone would provide for you. If you were sick, people would care for you. Back during the great plagues of Rome, Everybody left town except for the Christians who stayed behind to care for the sick, often sacrificing their own lives as well. It was because the Christians loved the stranger that disciples were made. When we started Creekside in 1990, my ambition was to reach the whole East Bay with the gospel. My ambition has shrunk. My ambition right now is to reach our block with the gospel. Because in trying to reach the East Bay, I've neglected my block. We've been there 40 years, and yet most of the people have never been in our house. We certainly have not been in most of the people's house. Most of them are strangers. 
just know to say hi to them. And yet, I believe these are the people that God has given us to reach. And, and uh, there are several older men right around my house, failing health. They're scared. They're scared. It's, I mean, who will I not, how could I ignore those guys? Lori and I don't have a great hospitality plan. We don't know what we're going to do. I, we could start having meals every week. I don't know if anybody would come. We've got, we've got more groundwork to do of just turning strangers into neighbors and neighbors into friends and friends into brothers and sisters. That's what we're doing for the rest of the time we can is focusing on our neighborhood. Because I'm convinced that hospitality, the love of strangers, having a, a, a big door that includes everybody is absolutely essential for the making of disciples of Jesus. One of my favorite movies is the 2002 remake of the Four Feathers adventure film. And it's, it's a dumb movie, but there's part of it I really like. And it's, it's a story of a young British officer who overcomes his fear to, to save his friends in the Mahdi Rebellion in the Sudan in the 1800s. But there's a scene in it where he is stumbling across the Sahara, alone, lost, about to die of thirst. When this huge Sudanese tribesman saves his life. And he will not leave his side. He stays with him the whole story and helps him to save his friends and all these things. And several times in the movie, the young British officer says, why are you doing this? And this is why I like the movie. Because each time the tribesman said, God put you in my path. I had to help you. That's the conviction of a truly hospitable person. Whoever God puts in your path, you will help them in any way you can. Let's pray. Lord, you've given us an impossible task, and that is to bear fruit, to reproduce disciples of Jesus, and yet you promise us the, the ability to do it because you live inside of us. And I pray that you will take these simple words today and apply them to our lives as they need to be applied, that we might become more fruitful branches for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.